Mustang is a special podcast production of Boise State Public Radio and the Mountain West News Bureau. Support for this series comes from Barbarian Brewing, who believes all it takes is a few untamed minds, a little elbow grease, and a few pints of beer to make true innovation happen. Well, my name is uh, Mario Gonzalez. I'm Oglala Sioux Tribal Attorney, and uh, I've represented the Oglala Sioux Tribe for many, many years. Uh, So I'd just like to give a little description of the uh, Oglala territories. the Oglala Sioux Tribe is part of the uh, Teton Sioux tribes, seven Lakota-speaking tribes, and they occupied a territory with other tribes uh, of 60 million acres recognized by Article 5 of the uh, 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty. And that area encompassed por- uh, portions of present-day North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Montana. Uh, th- this uh, broadcast was recorded uh, right in the heart of these lands. And uh, the Sioux were really reliant on horses prior to the reservation days because they had to hunt buffalo and there were two big uh, buffalo migrations in this area, one to the west of the Black Hills and one to the east of the Black Hills. So horses met survival of the people because their primary reliance was on a buffalo and other game. So then they also had to have horses to uh, protect the tribe from enemy tribes as well as the United States government. So uh, the horse was very, extremely important, you know, in the pre-reservation days. And even today, uh, we have a lot of people that uh, still uh, rely on horses to ranch on our reservations and do other, you know, go to rodeos. And so uh, the horse is really important. And, uh, the pre-reservation life of the people as well as present-day reservation life. You're listening to Mustang, a show about a wild horse learning the world of humans and a human learning the complicated world of Mustangs. I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is our final episode. I drove a thousand miles to the Black Hills of South Dakota to spend time with Dr. Yvette Running Horse Collin. She's the Lakota scientist you heard from last episode. She studies the history of the horse in North America, and she's the executive director of the Global Institute for Traditional Sciences. Together, we climbed up the rocky hill behind her house and found a quiet, shady spot to sit beneath the oak and pine trees. What about that shelf? Yeah, that looks great. I feel like a couple kids in a tree fort up here. <laughs> Before we started our interview, she took out an abalone shell, a bundle of sage, and a lighter. Is it okay if I record this? Yeah. Okay. So, anytime we speak about the sacred or we want a blessing for the work that we're about to do, then we uh, make a prayer and we light our sage. So for us, Shungwakan, the horse nation, are sacred. And so I will begin properly. The smoke rose slowly, and Dr. Running Horse Colin fanned it toward her face. 
and I will um, give my traditional introduction that's um, appropriate for uh, our topic today. So, Tashunke Iankewi Himachiap so that is my uh, my traditional Lakota name, and then I uh, introduced myself um, within uh, one of my Tioshpai structures. So that was that. I had come so far to spend time with this woman, because after all the interviews I've done for this series, I knew I still had so much to learn about the horse, its deep history here in North America, but also its future. How do we find a better way to live with wild horses in the West? I didn't know what kinds of answers Dr. Running Horse Colin might have for me, but I knew I needed to be here, on her ancestral lands, to just listen. She'd invited me to visit around the time of the Sundance ceremony, which is something very few outsiders are allowed to witness. The Sundance is one of our most important ceremonies. It's incredibly intricate and... um, precise and involved but basically it's a ceremony of renewal and it's something that um, occurs during a certain period of the year certain season and uh, for our family it ends on the summer solstice every year and so um, we are about to start that today so it's about renewal renewal and rebalance and regeneration it feels like a really beautiful time for me to be parachuting into your life <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> for this topic in particular for this topic in particular because um, our life together as as native people together with the horse at least for, for the Lakota um, that that union is uh, foundational for for rebalance to happen and that's something that the world needs now I sometimes I say more than ever, but the truth is, you know, indigenous peoples have been around for so long and we've been through these types of major change. Um, You know, we, we, our ancestors survived the ice age. And, you know, so we, we have understanding about how to navigate those systems. We had to learn. And so our scientific systems are very applicable today. Um, you know, you can look around and you see species extinction happening, major changes, um, very uh, quick evolutionary processes within, you know, within our lifetime, we're able to see um, birds shifting. I mean, scientists are noticing these things. And we've been through this, this before. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself as a guide then now? No, I actually um, see myself more as an extension of the work and prayers that our ancestors have already done. It's a continuum for us. So I'm able to do what I do the way I do it because of the love and dedication and faith and prayers of my ancestors and I, I'm here because of them. Dr. Running Horse Colin did her postdoctoral work as a Marie Curie Fellow at the Center for Anthropobiology and Genomics in Toulouse, France. She recently co-authored a groundbreaking paper in the journal Science about ancient horse genetics in North America. 
but she's never lost touch with where she came from. She's steeped in the indigenous knowledge, the science of her people. And she doesn't use that term science lightly. We had scientific systems that are completely based on sustainability, interestingly enough, completely based on that. And we, we implemented those and developed them and added to them and kept them in place. So rather than just um, blindly sort of following buffalo and running them off cliffs or, you know, whatever they think that we were doing, um, we were caretaking, we were hybridizing, we moved around in smaller bands. Why? Because if you have a great number of people that are living in one geographic place for too long, it upsets the balance. So we moved out of total respect before the water got dirty, before the environment got soiled, before the life forms were affected too much where they couldn't be safe there anymore. And it's a lot of um, attention and care that went into living like that, a lot of awareness. So. As, as Lakota before colonization, we understood we were an integral part of keeping the balance between all life forms. We had a job to do, and we were very serious about it. So um, that, you know, what happens when you take a people like that and you put them into a smaller area and prevent them from moving around, from hunting in a balanced fashion, uh, from gathering their plants, gathering their medicines. They didn't just hurt us. By hurting us and, and corralling us, really, they've m helped to make sure that the land gets sick and the life forms are not taken care of. And that's something that the, the federal government and the policies in the United States have done. And they've done that to us and they've done that to the horses. It's the same. And then they put you in a small space like that and they lock you up. And then they said, now be what you are. Now heal yourself. Now why are you like that? And they don't want to turn around and look at, you did this to us. You did this. We didn't do this to ourselves. And the horses didn't do that to themselves. I'm sitting in the pine needle duff listening to Dr. Running Horse Colin, and I close my eyes. I'm thinking over my travels, recording this podcast series. I'm remembering in my mind's eye the piles and piles of horse manure I saw around sage grouse lecks in Nevada. I'm revisiting the overgrazed mule deer habitat, destroyed by all the horses that have crowded onto it with the deer. I'm seeing the pools of water and small springs that have been pawed by horses to get the last drops. But then my mind's eye is zooming out, and I'm seeing all the people who have moved in to share the landscapes of the West with wild horses, and the mule deer, and the sage grouse. They've come with their cows, who also must eat. They've built houses further and further into wild horse country, taking water and fertile land. They've emitted so much CO2 and other greenhouse gases that they, we, have changed the climate. We've made it less hospitable to so many life forms. And yet, we blame the horses for destroying the land. My ancestors had a really hard time. We have stories about this. We couldn't understand the colonial mindset because from our perspective, 
it was a suicidal culture. You can't eat up everything that you come across and not replenish. It literally makes no sense. So we're seeing the um, results of those policies today. And somehow people aren't making that connection. Or another way to look at it, we aren't aware of how disconnected we are from the natural world. We get a taste of that lost connection here and there in moments when we get out of the city for a hike or a walk in the park. I feel it every time I bury my face in Boo's mane and just smell him. But something is broken or philosophically out of alignment if you ask Dr. Running Horse Colin. That Western, European, whatever you want to call it, culture of extraction and taking permeates everything from how we live to how we manage public lands and wild horses. Many times in my reporting, I'd hear horses described as an invasive species by biologists or ranchers or others who worry that there are too many of them out there. And that word, invasive, it has a lot of power. If it's decided that something doesn't belong here, that can provide justification for how we treat it, how we manage it, or remove it. For the Lakota, that construct is completely false. Horses are not an invasive species. Quite the opposite, in fact. They're a sovereign nation. It's Shumwakan. It's the horse nation. They have their own nationhood status for us. We know they're a keystone species. So much of, of the health and balance of this land is based on their presence and the work that they do through their own biological systems. The horses belong here, just like these trees, just like these rocks. They belong here. So you take them away and you're going to cause extreme imbalance. And we're seeing that now. So as my grandfather uh, taught me, he said, um, Tumkashila or, or creator or, or God, um, uh, put, uh, put Shumwakan, put the horse nation here with us. And then from there, he gifted it to the world. And we respect that. You know, we honor that. That means the world needed what Shunwakan could bring for balancing purposes. We don't question that. But to create a narrative that says they don't belong here, it's similar to what they have done to us, right? We're from here. This is our home. We've been here for tens of thousands of years. Horses for the Lakota weren't just another animal to carry their belongings or provide transportation for hunting or trade or war, as Europeans have long viewed them. They were put here to show us humans how to be good, how to stay connected with one another and the land. We didn't have fences. We didn't have corrals. Imagine that. It, you just had to be that good that the horse, with its own family structure, would want to engage with you. And we put great effort into developing ourselves in that way. And, and you'll hear us say this a lot. It's my hope that I'm a good relative, or I strive to be a good relative. That's an example, right? In, in being close with the horse nation, we had to be good relatives. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about our culture, is that that matters to us. It matters to us that we're a good relative. Um, and that, that, that means you understand 
inherently that you're a, these life forms are a part of you and you're a part of them. And your responsibility extends to them and across them. Dr. Running Horse Colin and I spoke for a couple hours that morning before the sun dance. And when we came back down the hill to her house, it was all a hustle and bustle as her family and friends prepared to go to the ceremonial grounds. At the kitchen table, her older son and daughter tied prayer bundles in long, colorful strands as the youngest son scampered around with the dog. Friends wrapped sage into circular headdresses. They gathered their feathered fans for dancing and their ceremonial pipes. And then they all piled into the car. I'll get out of your way. I'm going to back out. So I'm going to follow Yvette and her family to the ceremonial grounds and um, I'm probably going to stop recording and just play it by ear and I don't know how long I'm going to be there um, but I will tell you how it goes in some form or another. I didn't record anything at the Sundance ceremony. It would have been completely inappropriate to whip out a microphone at a sacred gathering like that. I can't share any details about the ceremony either, and I was only allowed to witness part of it. But I asked Dr. Running Horse Colin if it would be all right if I said a few things about the experience. I can say that it was a joyful time. Elders smiling at children running around in the sun, It was a celebration of life and connection with nature and with ancestors and with heaven. It was about gratitude and people coming together in a sacred circle and just dancing their hearts out, dancing their prayers and their hopes, dancing away sorrow and sickness. Tears rolled down my cheeks many times over those days, and I don't know exactly why, but they were not tears of sadness. I sat and listened to elders as they spoke to the younger generation and inspired them to be good relatives and to protect all life. It was just as Dr. Running Horse Colin said it would be, a ceremony about rebirth and renewal. In my time with her, she told me that the horse is one of the very few animals who can walk with humans in mind, body, and spirit. And just as with the ceremony, they're here to show us the way forward, to guide us on the path of rebalance and reconnection. The horse understands it's connected to everything. And when it loves, it loves completely. It's not hedging its bets or anything like that. We strove to learn from the horse, actually. There's great power in that. You know, um, in today's world, everybody's hedging their risk. You know, well, that one didn't give me enough of this, and so I'm not going to... 
I'm not going to open up myself to that. You know, it's, it's, that's no way to go around the world, right? You're not going to make much of a difference that way. And the horse is not like that. If you watch, it loves for life. And that is right. That's what Shunwakan was to us. If we did our part and let them do their part, we were a whole. And we together took care of this country. And we did a beautiful job together. And we can do it again. Dr. Running Horse Colin has gathered Mustangs from indigenous nations all around North America. She will bring them here to live out their days in her homeland in the Black Hills. They will guide the scientific research of her institute in collaboration with many others as she develops programs for young people to study the horses and how they interact in their family groups. There will be language immersion programs on the land with elders. People will gather data and plant certain plants and medicines that have evolved with horses over thousands of years. They will do the ecological research that will help all of us find ways for humans and horses to coexist in the future as they did in the past. Tell me what you hope your horses can teach the world. About life. About how connected we actually are. About the importance of being present. About the importance of being real. Um, to help us to understand Mitakuyoyasin, that we're all related. And that we're all a continuum. Um, you know, uh, we have a, a teaching that is when you um, understand every day that you're a representative of your ancestors. Their essence is a part of you and it's in you and every day you can be your best representative for them and that's what these horses are and that's what you are and that's what I am and if we can understand that concept in as m many on as many levels as possible it's it's a different world we can't be convinced so easily that we're isolated and that our lives don't matter and that we somehow don't have a place. When I came home from South Dakota, I went to Boo in his pasture and I sat down. I told him all about my travels, all the things I'd learned, and he just stood over me and closed his eyes. I have learned so much from this horse. He's shown me how to be fully present, to be real, to listen and be attentive and patient. But mostly, every day, he shows me how to be good. He's so simply good, even when he's naughty once in a while. And he loves completely. I wish I could say, after all the interviews and the research I've done for this series, this journey I've been on with Boo, that I have a set of solutions, a plan for what we do about the 80,000 wild horses out there and the 50,000 that are living out their days in government holding pens. 
I don't. But I will say I see them differently now. They're a symptom of a much bigger problem that lies within us and our broken relationship with the natural world. I guess that's what this whole Mustang issue needs more than anything when I think about what Dr. Running Horse Colin was saying. It's for everyone to feel like they have a place in finding balance and a way forward together and to come at it with love and perhaps a bit more trust in one another as horses do, as Boo does. sound of a sleeping baby Mustang who is snoozing quietly with his head in my lap in the middle of his pasture. It's hard to believe we've been together for one year, me and Boo. A little more than a year. Before that, he was wild. Running around in the open sagebrush. Not really trusting humans or wanting much to do with us. And now he hardly looks up when he's napping. And I come and sit with him. And he just puts his giant head right on my lap. And it's the most beautiful gift to be trusted like that. I don't take it lightly, boo-boo. Oh, I know, I know. Such a good nap and a fart. Yeah, it's, it's a good life. It's a pretty good life for this guy, I'm pretty sure. Pretty glad he's sharing it with me. I love you, baby horse. Good boy. Mustang was written and edited where I live, on the ancestral lands of the Methow people. For millennia, they inhabited the valleys and mountains surrounding the Methow River, which flows from the Cascade Mountains of Washington into the Columbia River. The Methow people do not have their own reservation. They were forced onto the nearby Colville Reservation in the 1880s. But there are some who still live in the Methow Valley today and are working to restore salmon habitat and preserve cultural traditions. This series was edited and sound designed by Liza Yeager. Thank you to Christine Trudeau for additional editing support. Katie Michael did the art for the series, and she also did the illustrations for the children's book that we made together to accompany this podcast. You can get your copy at thelittleblackmustang.com. Special thanks to Tom Michael and Lacey Daly at Boise State Public Radio for getting this podcast out into the world. And my sincere gratitude to the Roundhouse Foundation, who provided key support for both this series as well as the children's book. We couldn't have done it without them. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks so much for listening.
Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.